If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. The year is 539 B.C., and a man who 20 years previously had been a vassal king, that he had been a king under another king, has become, uh, after a series of victories over other kings, has become the emperor. He is now in charge of the entire Persian empire. He has defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus, king of Persia, now rules over what was then the Babylonian Empire and more. It is the first year of his being the ruler over this empire and this is where our story begins. Today we'll begin a series of sermons in which we will look at three, at least three books, maybe more, that deal with this period, that deal with God's people after the exile. We will look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Haggai, uh, possibly Zechariah and Malachi, we'll see. Just a broad overview, looking at the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Around 1000 BC, David is king of Israel. In 970, his son Solomon replaces him. David has died and Solomon becomes king for 40 years until 930. But in 930, his son replaces him does not listen to the people, there is a a revolt. And the ten tribes to the north, because Israel has twelve tribes, the ten tribes to the north split off, and they become known as Israel. Two tribes to the south stay loyal, the tribe of Benjamin, which is what Saul, the first king, this is where he came from, and the tribe of Judah, which is where David's family came from. Almost 200 years later, the northern kingdom, which did not follow after the ways of God, is conquered and taken into captivity by the Assyrians. They essentially disappear. They're known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. About 120 years later, the southern kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he attacks Jerusalem. And he takes captives to Babylon. This is where Daniel and the uh, Hebrew children, this is when they are taken to Babylon. Uh, In 597, eight years later, he attacks Jerusalem a third time. And then 11 years later, in 586, he finally attacks it for the third and final time. He destroys the city of Jerusalem and he burns the temple that Solomon had built. Now it is 539. Cyrus has defeated the Babylonians. And our story begins here in Ezra, or at least a part of the story of the people of God. If you look at the first verse, Ezra 1.1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. At least three things I think I want to mention here. First of all, we're dealing with real history. This isn't once upon a time in a far, far away place. Uh, This actually happened, which will become clear as we go through this. It involved real people. Secondly, the events described in what follows are in order to fulfill 
what the word of the Lord that was spoken by Jeremiah. And I think the passage that the writer has in mind is Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. This is what the author has in mind. But I would remind you, we've looked at this several Christmases in the past, um, what does it mean to fulfill? Um, uh, Matthew, as we've seen, does this over. This was done to fulfill. Uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This was done to fulfill. We are, whenever we think of a prophecy being made, we tend to think of it as a prediction. That the prophet says, this is going to happen in such and such a place. And we think, oh, that's a prediction. This is not what we find in scripture. What we find in scripture is, in fact, a promise. As it says in Jeremiah, this is fulfilling my gracious promise. A promise is personal, a prediction is not. Um, You'll notice that the Lord says, I will come to you, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise. A promise involves a commitment to a personal relationship. You can make a prediction about who's going to win a, a ball game. That's a prediction. That's not a promise. A promise is much more personal. It's made between two parties, maybe two persons, and it presupposes that there's a relationship between them in which one promises to the other or one group of people promise to another group of people. A prediction can be quite impersonal. It doesn't require any relationship whatsoever. If you're going to predict that the Dodgers are going to win today, it doesn't mean you might be a fan, but it doesn't mean that you have a personal relationship with them. A promise is made to someone. A prediction is made about someone. And so there's a significant difference there. I'd also say that a promise requires a certain degree of acceptance. You know, when you make a prediction, people can shrug their shoulders like, whatever. But a promise is made to a person. And the promises we see in Scripture are promises that God makes. He takes the initiative. He goes to people and he makes promises to them. And the promises that God makes are not fulfilled, I think, in the ways we expect. See, we expect a prediction. You say, this is going to happen, and it either happens or it doesn't. But a promise is something that is ongoing. The fulfilling of it is ongoing. It isn't like one and done, so to speak. It is something that happens, that goes on as time goes on. And if you want to example this, think of the vows that husbands and wives make to each other. Uh, these are lifelong promises. Every day, this promise is to be fulfilled. This isn't just like, well, you know, when we got married, I made these promises and I've done them and that's it. They are ongoing fulfillment. A promise involves personal relationship. And the people of Israel are God's people. He has made a promise to them. He has now moved Cyrus to do something that will fulfill that promise. From the time of Abraham, and you may remember our first hymn today, the God of Abraham prays, God has been making promises and keeping his promises to his people. The third thing I'd have you see as we go through is that the events that are described, including the political events, are seen as a result of God's activity. We read that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, We're told in Proverbs 21 
The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. That is, the hand of leaders are in God's hand. The hearts of leaders are in God's hands. And he can have them do whatever it is he wants them to do. And I think we might say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll buy it, Damon. I'll, I'll, yes. But in real life, do we actually believe that? See, we don't have a king in this country. And we're not sure that God is involved in the day-to-day events of our lives. There is an article that came out this week entitled, Can a Divided America Survive? And the author wrote, America barely survived the Civil War of 1861 to 65, the Great Depression of 1929 to 39, and the rioting and protests of the 1960s. But today's growing divides are additionally supercharged by instant internet and social media connections, 24-7 cable news, partisan media, and the denigration of America's past traditions. Things are bad now. But our own history suggests that if we're not careful, they can get even worse. His solution, in part, is that all Americans need to take a deep breath, step back, and rein in their anger, and find more ways to connect rather than divide themselves. I don't disagree with him, but as God's people, we need to recognize the reality that God is the king of the universe. He rules over all. There's a wonderful passage in Psalm 115. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. I think we so easily forget that. We will see in a bit that God not only works in the hearts of kings, of political leaders, but also in the hearts of ordinary people. All this in the first verse of Ezra's book. Look at verses 2, 3, and 4. This is what the king, or what Cyrus, king of Persia, says The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, as the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. What Cyrus writes here is really quite amazing. He's a pagan king. What does he know about the God of heaven? And it may be that he had Jews in his court who helped him write this letter. Um, I still think the language is, is really quite astounding. What is the focus of this decree? This is something I think we might gloss over and miss very, careful, uh, very easily. It is not a return from exile. Cyrus doesn't say, I want all the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, back to the Holy Land. What is the decree about? It's something that's mentioned three times. It's the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, which, by the way, is also mentioned three times. So this pagan king says, this is what I want done. I want the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. The response, look at verses 5 and 6. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, there it is again, God has moved in their hearts, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. 
All their neighbors assisted them with articles of gold and silver, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. The two tribes are mentioned from the Judah, Benjamin and Judah. And the leaders, the heads of families, uh, the priests, the Levites, those who are members of the priest tribe, those whose heart God had moved. God works not only in the heart of the big people, if you wish, but of ordinary people as well. The Lord moves them to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. In this account, it is the temple that is central. It involves people going back to the Holy Land, but it is, they have a purpose. They aren't just going back, oh, the 70 years that Jeremiah talked about are finished, now we get to go back. There is, in fact, a purpose. There is a return with a purpose. And so certain ones of them prepare to go. Those who cannot go or will not go, uh, supply them with gold and silver, with livestock, with valuable gifts, so that they can, in fact, take on this project. You'll notice that not everyone goes back to Jerusalem. Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, who lived after the time of Jesus, says that people didn't go back because they had good lives in Babylon and prosperous lives and they didn't want to leave their good lives. Um, That may be, but that sort of misses the point. Cyrus doesn't say, here's a decree, you all go back. The decree is, I want the temple to be rebuilt. And for that to happen, certain people have to go back. Not everyone has to go back for the temple to be rebuilt. Secondly, the gifts are quite generous. These people who don't go, in fact, are quite generous in their giving. The picture, I think, is reminiscent of the Exodus, even though I'm not sure this is what has in mind. Do you remember after the tenth plague, before the Israelites left, all their neighbors gave them gold and silver, basically saying, please leave? Well, now those who are going to Canaan, going to the Promised Land, their neighbors give them gold and silver for the rebuilding of the temple. But Cyrus isn't finished. The decree, this isn't just words. Look, if you would, at verse 7. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. In Jeremiah 52, we are told that the Babylonians took vessels from the temple. Um, Cyrus wants to return all of these. And if you look, beginning in verse number 8, Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Midridah, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver, Sheshbazar brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. It is, in fact, a returning of what had been taken. Now we come to chapter 2. And I won't read all of chapter 2, but this chapter demonstrates that these are real people. If you look at verse number 64, at the end of chapter 2, the whole company numbered 42,000, 360, besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants, they also had 200 men and women singers. 
They had 736 horses, 245 mules. Uh, let's see, 435 right here. Uh, camels, 6,720 donkeys. You'll notice the following. In verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, it's the leaders. After that, from verse 2, the second part of verse 2 to verse 20, we have the laity, the non-priests, the non-leaders. And they are identified by their family relationship. They belong to this family. But beginning in verse number 25 to verse 35, we have people who are identified by where they live, by place names. Verses 36 to 39, we have the priests. Verses 40 to 47, the names of Levites, singers, and gatekeepers. 48 to 54, temple servants. 55 to 58, the servants of Solomon. And then 59 to 63, those who cannot prove their ancestry. There are two separate issues here. One refers to laymen, that is, people who say, we're Jewish, we can't prove it. The second group of people are those who say, we're actually Levites, we we belong to the priest tribe, but we can't prove it. Um, The writer of of this letter, or this book, assumes that we know this, but Jews kept very careful records of their ancestry. Now, because of fires, perhaps, or just, just loss or theft, some people cannot prove their genealogy. The problem is not so much with the lay people. The problem is with the priest, because if you do not belong to the tribe of Levi, you should not be a priest. You should not be supported with the offerings that are given for worship. So verse 63, the governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. This is a system that we don't quite understand, but from what we can tell, the priest, the high priest would wear something, would ask a question, and there was a yes answer or a no answer, and this would be a way of saying, is this person of the tribe of Levi? And the high priest would be able, by the direction of God, to know whether or not this was the case. In verse 68, they arrive at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on the site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silvers, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. See, it isn't enough that they go back home to Jerusalem. They come with free will offerings. The amount of gold, 1,100 pounds of gold. Not an insignificant amount. The silver, three tons of silver. This is given so that the temple can be rebuilt. And now that that's happened, everybody settles. You know, oh, my folks are from this town. I'm going to go over there and see if the old house is still there and people settle in to their homes. Now it's time to rebuild the temple. But first things first. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
In Exodus chapter 19, before Israel is given the law, before they're given the Ten Commandments, before God enters into covenant with them, he says to them, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is to say, in the Old Testament, to be a part of Israel meant that you worshipped God. And now they've come back to Jerusalem, and the first thing they want to do is to sacrifice and worship God. As Abram had done, as the patriarchs had done, as the Israelites had done before the tabernacle. And then you have the tabernacle and the temple. An altar is key. It is critical to having an altar. It is a place where people could worship God. And they did this, we are told, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. That is to say, they didn't like, let me see, how do we think this, we want this altar to look? They did it in accordance with God's instructions. By the way, God told Moses that the altar was where he would meet with his people. And so there needs to be an altar. They build an altar so they can sacrifice to God. But then something surprising comes up in verse number three. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. This is the first hint that there's a possibility of trouble. There are other people in the land. But what are we to make of this fear? Could it be that instead of building the temple or starting the project, they just build an altar? That way, you know, the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people won't be too upset. They just start out with something small. Actually, no, I don't think that's it at all. It is not just an altar. It is a place where God will meet with his people. And we find that they're not afraid that they stop the project. They, in fact, continue. They will, we will see it a bit, begin the project of rebuilding the temple. Think about it this way. If you know there is opposition, is not God the one to whom you should turn? When they know that there are enemies out there, the most appropriate thing to do is to worship God and know that he will watch over you. Just one last thing. They follow the instructions that Moses had given. Yet because it's all in the past, we've, it's 900 years since Moses has been around. Okay? 900 years. This is something that was given centuries before. But they are very careful to follow the instructions that God had given to Moses, his servant. If you look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or of booths. This is where they live outside with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. So they do this first. Now we come to verse 7. The work of rebuilding the temple begins. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival, the house of God in Jerusalem, 
Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his brothers, his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundations for the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise God as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Just some things to notice to do this. First of all, the cedars come from Lebanon. Solomon had done the same thing four centuries earlier. Okay? They come from Tyre and Sidon, and they're actually brought out to the Mediterranean Sea, brought down the coast, floated down uh, to Joppa, and then they're carried to Jerusalem. They begin building the second month of the year. The first month of the year is Passover. You remember what God has done for his people. And then, once you have remembered, then the work can begin. By the way, Solomon began his temple in the the second month of the year as well. So they're following the pattern that we see in Solomon. It is an occasion for praise. The people saying he is good, his his love to Israel endures forever. This is what the people sang five centuries before when David built the tabernacle in Jerusalem. But here there is no Ark of the Covenant. There is no visible representation of the presence of God. There's no temple. There's only a beginning. And it is a small one. As a result, we have two groups of people. We have those who are crying, those who are weeping, and those who are just delirious with joy, who are shouting for joy. Why the weeping? Well, it implies that these are not tears of joy. One of the things we will see in this series is we will look at the prophet Haggai. And Haggai is one who encourages them in the project of building the temple. In his second sermon, he says, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? These are the old guys, the old Levites. the heads. They remember Solomon's temple. They saw it. How does it look to you now? Okay, you've got this new temple. Does it seem to you like nothing? In other words, they were sad because this is not going to be as beautiful as what Solomon built. Um, and certainly Solomon's temple was magnificent. But what is the temple about? That will be the focus of our study as we go through this series. Why the shouts of joy? Because there is a sense that God is doing something. He has begun something. It began with Cyrus. 
He moved the hearts of leaders and then the people. They have come back to the promised land. They're in Jerusalem. The project has begun and God is doing something. The seemingly impossible has taken place. A pagan king has issued a decree, not for them to go back, for them to rebuild the temple of God. The same king has returned what was stolen, which was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and his men. They have been encouraged to return to Jerusalem. The Lord has moved their hearts. Their neighbors who can't go with them have been very generous in giving them things so they can go back. An altar has been built. They have been worshiping God now for five months. They began in the seventh month. And now the foundations have been laid. Why not be glad? Why not shouts for joy? But there's something new on the horizon. Opposition. And from this point on in our study, in this series, until the end of Nehemiah, there will be opposition. There will be those who oppose them. It will take different forms, as we will see. It begins with compromise, and then it moves on to intimidation, if you wish, trying to make people fearful. And ultimately, there will be direct opposition through political means. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel... They came to Zerubbabel, he's the political leader of of the Jews, and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel said, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Right away we are told these are the enemies of the people of God. No suspense here, unless you're like, hmm, are these the good guys or the bad guys? We know right off the bat, these are the enemies of God's people, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. Who are these people? Well, remember I told you about the ten lost tribes? They were taken into captivity. Well, you just can't have a bunch of land and no one living there. So what the Assyrians did was they had destroyed, they had conquered other people. They brought people from other countries and had them settled there. This is described to us in 2 Kings chapter 17. And let me read it to you. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthath, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. The Israelites are gone. Now you bring in new people. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. Ready-made deal. Who could ask for more? The house is already there. The walls are there. The wells are dug. I mean, life is good. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of this country requires. We come from another place. We have another God. We don't know who the God of this place is. The king of Assyria gave this order. 
have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. So now you have someone evangelizing basically these new people who are living in the land. But we are told, nevertheless, each national group made, up, made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines of the people of Samaria, had, uh, set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made in the high places. So now you have a mixture. Yeah, we're going to worship the God of Israel because otherwise the lions are going to come and kill us. But we're going to keep worshiping the gods that mom and dad and grandpa, our grandparents did. And so you have a mixture. These people in the New Testament will be known as the Samaritans. They are Gentiles who have been settled in the land because the ten tribes have been taken into captivity. But the exiles will not make a compromise. They basically say, no, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. Why? Why be so hard-nosed about this? I mean, don't you want people to help you? I mean, if they say they worship God and they want to help you out, what, what's the big deal? Well, when they say we worship your God as you do, this is simply not the truth. It may be that they sacrifice to God, but they also sacrifice to their own gods. They worship false gods. They have no part in this. So the first type of opposition is compromise. We'll see this in Nehemiah as well. That doesn't work, so the next step is intimidation. They sought to discourage the people and to make them afraid. And they actually hired professionals. They hired lobbyists to go out and get the, the Persians to stop this project. The Lord willing, this is where we'll pick it up next Sunday. But in preparing this, at least two questions came up in my mind. And the first was, why was there any opposition at all? The book opens with this amazing event. A pagan king, Cyrus, makes a decree that the temple of the God of Israel is to be rebuilt. And we are told in no uncertain terms that it is in order to fulfill the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. And we see that the Lord moved the hearts of other people as well. So this is God's doing. He gets Cyrus to do this. He gets the Jews to move back. Um, those who don't go give quite generously to this project. I mean, everything's falling into line. This is miraculous. This is almost unbelievable. They make it back safely. They build an altar. And for five months they sacrificed to the Lord as they had been instructed. They lay the foundations of the temple. Everything is going as it should. You would expect, if, if God's behind this, he has Cyrus get the ball rolling, everything should go along swimmingly. And then there's opposition. And the question in my mind is, why is there opposition? If God is behind this project, why is there opposition? Why doesn't he stop the opposition? Why didn't he send the lions back? You know, back in the day. Why didn't he send, you know, and tell these people, hey, don't mess with my people. This is something I've told them to do. Why does God allow it to continue? 
I will tell you now at the beginning of the series, we should not be surprised by opposition. We should not expect a smooth ride through life, no bumps. There is a reason for God allowing this opposition, a reason that we may or may not be able to see. And some of you may be thinking, well, that's okay. Opposition's okay. God's going to take care of this. Opposition against God's people will never succeed. Well, we won't read it, but in the rest of chapter 4, they send a letter to, it's no longer Cyrus, Artaxerxes has replaced him, Cyrus is dead. And they send a letter to him uh, filled with lies. It's just out and out lies. These people are going to rebel, they're not going to pay their taxes. These are rebellious people. They have a bad history. You should stop this project immediately. And we're thinking, well, listen, God moved Cyrus. Uh, He can move Artaxerxes. So this is never going to work. Look at verse number 24 of chapter 4. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The king says, stop what you're doing now. And for 16 years, no work is done on the temple. I thought this was something God wanted done. Why the opposition? Why is it allowed to succeed? We should not be surprised. This is in fact what we find in the lives of God's people. God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He comes to Canaan and what happens? There's a famine. He has to go to Egypt. It's never a straight line. It's never a smooth path and we should not expect that it would be. The idea of a life without difficulties is not a biblical vision. This is not what we find in scripture. And if we wanted to see a pattern that we should follow, then look at the Lord Jesus. God comes in the flesh. He's virgin born. It's a miraculous birth. And what happens? Herod tries to kill him. He has to go to Egypt. And then during his ministry, here comes God in the flesh, teaching people, healing people, feeding people. And what happens? There's opposition. Here is a man who is without sin, a man who has great compassion, and there's opposition. We should not be surprised. The second question that came up as I began preparing for this series is, what is the big deal about the temple? I mean, Cyrus makes a decree. The Jews leave a comfortable life to go back to do this. People give to this. People oppose this. I mean, it's a temple, for goodness sake. What, what is the big deal? You might be asking, why are we studying it? This is Old Testament stuff. We're New Testament people. What's going on here? Does it really have anything to teach us today? I would suggest to you, and you'll have to take my word for it at this point, wait till the end of the series, that these books of the time after the exile have a lot to teach us. They have much to teach us. And their message needs to be heard today, perhaps more than any other time. The message of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi the time after the exile are words we need to hear. I think this will become clear as we go along. Um, 
bear with me and trust me, we will get there. Beyond these questions, though, I'm struck by the reality of how easily we forget that God is the Lord of all, that God is in control of human history. We're surprised that Cyrus, a pagan king, can actually do this. Oh, but God moved his heart. And we, we almost have to be told that because otherwise we would never believe it. If, in fact, in the first verse it didn't tell us that, if it just told us Cyrus made a decree, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, I don't know that we would ever think, oh, God had him do this. The Lord had him do this. God is in control even though what we can see or perceive by the senses points in the opposite direction. There are times when it seems that God has forgotten, that God has failed to pay attention. Not so much for us, I think, in this country, but think of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering martyrdom. And yet I think they have a clearer picture than we do that God is in control. Here in this country, we live in a time of political turmoil. People have been saying that something akin to the Civil War may break out. The divisions are very deep and quite pronounced. And the one thing that I see is a rage has emerged that is expressed in a variety of ways. I think anger is appropriate. We're told, be angry and do not sin. But what we hear is a rage. And it is a rage that is a manifestation of the belief that all things are in our hands. We have the power. Okay? That God has little or nothing to do with what's going on in the political system in this country. And that the people have the right to get what they want. The call of God's people is not passivity. We're not just to sit down and cross our arms and say, well, you know, God will take care of everything. We live in a democracy. We have the right to participate. We do not have the right to act as though God is not in control. We do not have the right, if you wish, to rage against the machine and imagine that God has nothing to do with what's going on. If we believe that God rules, then we need to live that way and act that way. We need to believe that the God of Abraham and the God of the people of Israel, Benjamin and Judah, back during the time of Cyrus, that he's still the same God today. It doesn't mean a smooth ride. It doesn't mean there won't be opposition. It doesn't mean that the opposition will not, for a time, be successful. But God is in control. And he is the God that we worship. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we live in a country where we have certain rights, rights that our brothers and sisters in the past, even in the present, and other places don't have. But in the process, we may have forgotten that all things are in your hands. Not only the heart of the king, but the heart of the president, the senators, the governors, the congressmen. Even more than that, the hearts of the voters. We may despair that things don't seem to be going well. 
that many are disenfranchised, many suffer injustice, and we get angry. May we not forget you are in control. It doesn't mean things will turn out immediately the way we want them to. It doesn't mean that in our lifetime they'll turn out the way we want them to. But you are in control. You have a purpose. You have a plan. And we are to trust you. You alone are worthy of complete trust and worship. Praise. That's why you've called us together today. I ask that as we go through these books, even though we live millennia later, we will learn the lessons that they learned. Not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We are told that the weather is going to get quite hot this week. Even the weather is in your hands. We don't ask that you make it cooler, but that you would watch over us and preserve us through this time of a heat wave. May we have a sense of your presence with us in the coming days to know that you are with us every step of the way. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.